Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. So some goings-on today in the Gilgo Beach case, as promised in July, when the arrest of Rex Uman occurred as the Gilgo Beach serial killer. We were promised on that date by District Attorney Ray Tierney that they had a fourth case impending that would would be indicted in short order once they had the necessary DNA evidence, mitochondrial and nuclear DNA evidence that gave them enough evidence to present to the grand jury to get the fourth indictment of the Gilgo Beach Four as they became known as, and of course, put it on the screen. Maureen Brainerd Barnes, the case was just added today, the indictment. Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartolome, and Amberlyn Costello. And we're going to bring you this case today because it's there are some new things going on. And we know this case has been an infamous case in the history of serial killers and also in the history of Suffolk County, Long Island. As so many twists and turns have occurred with this case, the case languished for 12 years with very little happening until the task force was formed and then things started to happen. And we credit uh, recently uh, resigned Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison, of course, a former NYPD chief of department, chief of detectives, And of course, give credit to District Attorney Ray Tierney and the task force that they started uh, involving the Suffolk County detectives, the FBI, the state police, uh, the Suffolk County um, jail personnel that have their own investigative unit, and of course, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office own investigators. So with a team like that, it's understandable now why they got such great results from this case. And we're going to do a dive into this today. We'll discuss the press conference and we'll discuss all the things that occurred today that brought this case finally to the fourth indictment of the women known as the Gilgo Four and added today was Maureen Brainerd Barnes. So guys, hold on to your seats. Get ready. You're entering true crime from a police perspective. The -the off-the-cuff perspective. You're entering the police off the cuff zone. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in branch We still don't know who pulled the trigger. I got an exciting, not a big cast of characters, but at least two other cast of characters to join me today to bring you this show. And I'm going to first introduce to you retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, New York, Detective Phil Grimaldi. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you for having me, Billy. Well, it looks like you had your game face on. I don't want to be that serious. This is a serious matter, but you look really serious today. All right, I'll loosen up. All right, loosen up a little bit. 
And today we also have a criminologist, doctor of criminology from St. Thomas University in sunny Miami, a fan favorite. I complimented her. I told her how good she looks today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Debbie Goodman. Hey, Dr. Mm. Debbie, that's what I like. He came in nice and smiling. You know, Phil looked like he just had killed a few people, but, you know, he came in smiling. So, you know, this case is is just, it's an amazing case, and it's taken so many twists and turns over the years, but good news today, some really good news. And I think the people that have been following this case, they want to hear the good news. And, you know, when you talk about the Gilgo Four, you know, there's really a total of 11 bodies in this case. And we'll find out down the road as we dig deeper and as the investigators dig deeper into this case, whether in fact they can charge any of these other cases. And of course, on the screen, the Gilgo Four, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartolome, and Amberlynn Costello. According to the New York Times, in an article written today, when Rex Schumann was arrested and charged in July as the Gilgo Beach serial killer, prosecutors outlined a narrative against him that his defense lawyer, Michael Brown, attacked as cherry-picked and DNA evidence that Mr. Brown derided as shaky. Mr. Ewerman, who is now 60 years old, had been charged with murdering three of the so-called Gilgo Four, uh, who in 2010 were found bound with burlap, belts, and tape on the Long Island oceanfront. Prosecutors said they were awaiting the DNA testing they needed to charge him in the killing of the fourth woman, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 25, when she was killed, of Norwich, Connecticut. But then those charges finally came on Tuesday, just over six months later. Prosecutors used the occasion to deliver their version of a knockout punch in the case. In addition to charging Mr. Human with second-degree murder in court, they filed an extensive outline of an updated, ratcheted-up case that seemed to stun the normally agile Mr. Brown, who is... Of course, Mr. Ewerman's attorney. After, hear, after the hearing, he deflected questions regarding the new evidence, saying that it only had just been divulged to him. He said that his client had maintained his innocence from day one, and that he was looking forward to fighting these charges. That fight may have just gotten more difficult. Previously, Mr. Brown had cited weaknesses in the mitochondrial DNA testing method used by investigators to connect stray hairs found on the victims with Mr. Ewerman and his family. Tremendous news. Uh, but Dr. Debbie, let me go to you first. What does this do to the case for the defense? Mm -hmm. Well, first, um, good evening, Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil, the, the audience members. Always a pleasure to join. I think this is very telling. And once again, it's going to solidify more of, of this individual's involvement. You know, when we talk about serial killers, mass murderers, remember, these people become obsessed about everything involving a case from A to Z, before they commit the crime, during the crime, and the aftermath. So now that we have identified, aligned, and connected this suspect with our victim number four, Miss Brainerd Barnes, it's really going to be an uphill climb, I believe, for this defense. We've got the mitochondrial DNA. We've got nuclear DNA. We've got so much that will be revealed through the searches, 200 searches plus that he has made on the case itself. Why? Because 
these killers want to know where is law enforcement in the process and in the journey? Is the killer one step ahead or is law enforcement um, closing in? So I think um, really identifying key, solid, validated evidence is just going to be, I know we can't quite say the slam dunk. We, we don't want to use that terminology, but it's um, looking close. I don't, I don't think the question anymore is, did Rex Hewerman participate in these four murders? Rather, how could it not be him? Very good, uh, Dr. Debbie. Detective Phil. Yes, sir. Hard to follow that, but I, I think I have confidence that you can. Um, with this case now, this certainly gives a hell of a lot more work for the defense to try to create any kind of doubt with this evidence. This is science. This is scientific evidence. Bill. Billy, I think uh, what you just said uh, really showed today in the press conference when the attorney, uh, Mike Brown, who I thought uh, came across to me as very strong, very professional, very confident in his defense of Rex Human. However, today he uh, kind of got uh, uh, a little bit uh, taken by surprise by the new evidence. Uh, I think that uh, he tried to describe Rex Urman as a uh, as a person who was, uh, uh, you know, living uh, work, church and home type of uh life, uh, as we know that that's not the case based on all of the evidence that I see here. I am firmly convinced that he's responsible for at least these four murders. And I think that some of the new stuff that came out today uh, is even more powerful. The fact that uh, he did the searches, as Dr. Debbie was mentioning, but he also searched equipment to uh, wipe his uh, computer and his phone uh, you know, to, to erase any, uh, you know, searches previously that I'd done. And I believe he was in a possession of that equipment. Uh, before we went on the air, I talked about how Mike Yeri always talks about consciousness of guilt. He was consciously looking for equipment to uh, perhaps erase uh, whatever searches he did on his computer and cell phone and, and uh, laptop, things of that nature. So uh, those are some strong, strong uh, things that I think the defense has to get over. Uh, this case is probably very solid at this point. And as uh, Dr. Debbie alluded to, we never use the term a slam dunk case. There's no such thing because you never know what those 12 people and the two alternates are going to do in a jury room or, or what, what conclusion they're going to come to. So a good defense attorney makes an argument. He tries to create doubt. And uh, if that doubt is created in the minds of the jurors, you could wind up with um, an acquittal. I don't see that in this case, but as I said, uh, the way the criminal justice system is in this country, you never know. You know, Phil, I always use the term, and if uh, Professor Geary, who's not on the show tonight, he started college tonight as a teaching. He's a professor. Tonight he was started his first class at five o'clock. <laughs> he's not a student. He's a professor. We're uh, all students. <laughs> And we're all students. That's we right. learn something every day, especially okay. on this show. It's that's true. Right. It's true. He uses the term consciousness of guilt. And I'm guilty for my own canonisms, which I always say good investigation is equal parts art and equal parts science. And when they come together, it brings a powerful weapon against the accused. And when you have good investigators that know how to talk to people, solicit information, gather information and draw conclusions as a group, not as individuals. Detectives need to be a team. As we saw when they put together a task force, things started to happen. When people work as we used to call them secret squirrels, 
when the secret squirrels would keep things to themselves and not share it, that's when you had problems. But once they put this task force together, things started to happen. I want to play a little bit of Ray Tierney and the press conference today. There could be no mistake. The work of the grand jury is continuing. Uh, now it's a little low, Bill. We talked about the transition from, from the grand jury to the prosecution. Well, with regard to those other bodies and those other murders, the grand jury, the task force will continue uh, to investigate those cases. They'll be investigated through the grand jury uh, and when it is appropriate. Uh, and if we have uh, anything to say, we will, we will say it at that time. But we're going to let that investigation play out. Um, you know, I, before I turn it over for questions, I'll just talk about the bail letter. The bail letter uh, discloses some further information on the case. Obviously, it's not all of the evidence in the case, but it does disclose some. So I'll synopsize that and open it up for questions at the end. Um, with regard to uh, the, the first part of the, the bail letter, it, it uh, uh, indicates that the task force has established that uh, um, the defendant's family was out of state uh, during Maureen Brainerd Barnes' murder, just as he, uh, they were out of state during the murder of the other three victims. Uh, the family had checked into a hotel in Atlantic City uh, in Ju July 6th of 2007, uh, and they <clears throat> remained there till approximately July 20th of 2007, and uh, both the documentary evidence as well as witness uh, statements have indicated that during the time of uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes' disappearance in July, uh, on, on or about July 9th of 2007, uh, Yerman was not with his family. Uh, he joined them sometime thereafter. Um, we also recovered two burner phones from uh, the defendant at the time of his arrest. Uh, the phone ending in 1697 was recovered from his office and the phone 2671 was recovered from his person. With regard to the phone ending in 1697, uh, again, we see the same uh, repetitive uh, activity on that phone. It was used to contact numerous sex workers. We also were able to use it to uh, identify an alias, Andrew Roberts, which was a known uh, alias being used by uh, the defendant. We were also able to recover a fraudulent email account, which is uh, sandbagger303 at gmail.com. Uh, the sandbagger email address was used uh, similar to the T-Hawk uh, fraudulent account. Uh, the uh, T-Hawk was used after sandbagger, but the sandbagger account was used once again to search for uh, torture porn and info on the Gilgo case, on the Gilgo investigation and uh, victims' families. Uh, the, uh, the defendant was particularly uh, interested in the cellular telephone uh, technology being not only used by the FBI, but, but specifically by the FBI in this case. Uh, we also re recovered numerous electronic devices from the defendant, including a number of laptops, smartphones, tablets. Um, from that, we learned that the defendant undertook numerous searches for so software that could e assist in erasing or wiping data from computer and digital devices such as Easy Hide IP and Shredder X. He used those two uh, applications to destroy uh, evidence in this case. Uh, we see that he uh, continued to make prostitution-related searches before, during, and after the disappearance and murder of the four victims in this case. Uh, notably, on one laptop that was recovered from the house, there was an attempt to shred evidence shortly before the defendant met with and uh, murdered Melissa Bartholomew. Uh, another laptop recovered in the house accessed Amber Costello's back page ad on September 1st, 2010 at approximately 9.03 p.m. 
and that is just hours before the ruse uh, occurred around midnight on September 2nd. So the way the timeline works is on 9.03, that laptop that was recovered from the defendant's house was used to access Amber Costello's back page ad. Uh, thereafter, at about 11.33, the burner phone that was used to kill Amber Costello contacted Amber Costello's phone uh, from Massapequa Park. And later at 12.05, that same phone accessed uh, that, that same uh, that Amber Costello's phone. But this time, the phone had moved from the Massapequa Park area to the West Babylon area where Amber Costello lived and then back to Massapequa Park. Um, so uh, that uh, that is uh, significant evidence as well. Uh, with I think the most, well, the biggest uh, change is the DNA evidence, uh, and we've received uh, significant DNA evidence between the time of the first arraignment and this time. You know, although this is the hardest thing I think for anyone to understand, I think it's the most important thing to understand right now because. The first part of this, when he's talking about the cell phone technology, the burner phones, the computer, the digital evidence, that's more of the art, a little mixture of the art and the science of investigation. However, what he's going to talk about right now is the science of investigation. And not only does this bring in the collection of evidence and the preservation of evidence, but it brings in the Suffolk County Police Lab as probably as well as the FBI lab. And they don't want to name this lab. But I'm pretty sure it's the Othram Lab in Texas that I think believe did the DNA evidence on the Brian Koberger case. And they are a tremendous lab, one of the top lab. And he's not going to mention them because I don't think uh, they want uh, the press to reach out to these private labs. That, so that's why they're not naming them. But the work that's going on, and I think that's why the attorney for Rex Schumann, Michael Brown, if he had hair, he would have been pulling it out, is because the technology has just grown by leaps and bounds. And he's like, even in the last year, he was not ready for this. And guess what? He better start getting ready. Uh, which I'll synopsize for you uh, at this time. We've always spoken right from the very beginning. We spoke about the five hairs of significance that were recovered from uh, three of the four burial sites of the women. Uh, so I'll just go through that. That uh, And uh, we earlier reported on mitochondrial DNA evidence as the three of those hairs. We now have uh, nuclear DNA results for all five of the hairs. So I'll, I'll go through it. Uh, the first, uh, the most significant hair for the, for the, for the um, purposes of the uh, superseding indictment was the, 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 hair, the, uh, the, the hair that was found on uh, Brainerd uh, Barnes. It was found on the buckle of the belt that secured her lower body. Um, and we also found a um, uh, three, uh, three hairs uh, at the site of uh, Megan Waterman's uh, burial. We found two female hairs and one male hair. The male hair was found at the bottom of the burlap that Megan Waterman was wrapped in. And the two female hairs were, were found around the, the head area, one at the top of the burlap and one near the tape that was used to restrain Megan Waterman's head. Uh, the, the fifth hair was a female ha uh, hair that was found in the area of um, Amber Costello's head. Now, at the time of the original ar arraignment, we reported on mitochondrial DNA uh, results for three of those hairs. With regard to the my Megan Waterman uh, hair that was found outside the head area, it was uh, consistent with um, 
the uh, genetic profile of both ASA, the, the mitochondrial DNA profile of both ASA and uh, Victoria Heurman, uh, and you could ex uh, exclude the rest of the population to 99.69% uh, of the rest of the population. With reg regard to the one male hair uh, of significance that was found uh, at, uh, in the, in, on the burlap with uh, Megan Waterman, again, that genetic um, uh, result was uh, consistent with uh, uh, the defendants and 99.96 of the population uh, could be excluded. And then finally, we had the mitochondrial results with regard to the female hair uh, found uh, at the Costello uh, burial site. And uh, that was consistent with the genetic profiles of both ASA uh, um, and Vic Victoria Yerman. And that was to an exclusion of 99.98% of the, the rest of the population. And if you remember the science of mitochondrial DNA, unlike nuclear DNA, you, you inherit that solely from your mother. So a mother and a child will have identical uh, mitochondrial DNA profiles. Um, so that, uh, that is the mitochondrial results. We now have nuclear DNA profiles on all five mm -hmm. of the question hairs. And we use this using uh, the, the SNP or SNP process. And with regard uh, to the, uh, the hair found in uh, on uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes on that belt buckle. Uh, it was uh, 7.9 trillion times more likely to have come from someone with the identical genetic profile as Asa Ellerup. Uh, with regard to the, the first hair that we got the mitochondrial DNA profile on, the female hair on Megan Waterman, uh, that is uh, 2.374 times 10 to the 48th power as likely to have come from someone matching the genetic profile of Asa Ellerup. And the way that that number is is uh, is expressed, that's uh, scientific uh, expression. I'm told. So that's basically 2.374, and you add 48 zeros to that. <laughs> so that's a number so large it doesn't even exist. Uh, you know, a name for it doesn't even exist. Uh, with regard to the second hair that was found on on the tape uh, by the head of Maureen uh, of Megan Waterman, uh, that was also consistent with a, a person with the same genetic profile as Asa Ellerup, and that was um, uh, 2.778 times 10 to the 488th uh, power uh, could, could exclude the rest of the population. Uh, with regard to the male hair, that again, that was the, we received the mitochondrial uh, DNA profile with regard to that. The nuclear DNA profile on that was um, uh, 1.48 times 10 to the 169th power as to, to come from someone sharing the same genetic profile as uh, the defendant. Uh, and finally, with regard to Amber Costello, uh, we, we received the, the nuclear DNA uh, a profile on that, and that was 4.654 times 10 to the 63rd power uh, as likely to have come from someone with the same genetic profile as his daughter, Victoria Heurman. So again, the mitochondrial DNA uh, for mother and daughter are going to be the same. Nuclear uh, are going to be separate. Everyone has a separate nuclear DNA profile except for identical twins. Uh, so I, I know this was a little tough to get through, but I think it's really, really important. Uh, Dr. Debbie, how do, will a defense attorney argue this? How is, is Michael Brown, who we saw in a press conference, they could show a little bit of his press conference later, was pretty flustered. 
Wait, all of a sudden it was mitochondrial. Now it's nuclear. Oh, you know, I, I, now what is he? Very strong, strong evidence. And again, the science, the science is what we have to be like, oh my God. And I'll, I hear, I, I'm reading some of the chat and people are saying, does that mean that Asa Ellerup and Victoria Human are involved in this? And no. I knew that was coming. No, yeah, it's not. Dr. Debbie, would you explain? Yes, indeed. And, and certainly appreciate the, the viewers' um, insight analysis and commentary. So the only thing that I could think of from a possible, logical, reasonable standpoint that the defense might raise would be that of transference. We've talked about it before. The analogy might be with the pet and the pet owner. So for those viewers who own pets, the cat, the dog, if the animal is seated on the couch for a period of time, the likelihood is there's going to be shedding of the hair, the fur. Now the pet owner comes along, sits down. What's the likelihood of transference of that fur and hair to the individual? High, high probability. But now listening to all that we've heard and, and the three of us certainly know and our viewers are extremely astute and adept on these matters, science just does not lie. DNA doesn't lie. We refer to it as the silent witness. It says nothing, yet it speaks volumes. So just hearing the mathematics and the percentiles and percentages here, I don't know about everybody else, but um, maybe I got as high as calculus in, in high school, but where did we ever hear of these numerics with 48 zeros? It's just astonishing. And therefore, I think once again, when jury members hear this and they're smart and they want to focus and they want to understand, this is once again pointing to the higher likelihood and probability of guilt. And the defense is going to come up with something and say, no, the, um, you know, the mother's not involved, the wife's not involved, the daughter's not involved, and neither is my client. You know, Dr. Debbie and Phil, I'm going to direct this question to you. Very impressive how they were able to uh, keep this evidence, uh, secure it, and have it secured and in a place where it would not degrade so that 12 to 14 years later, it's processed using this new technology, um, SNP. Single nucleotide polymorphism. My God, I studied I don't know how you learned that. that. You know, <laughs> Phil, I'm going to give you an honorary Brooklyn PhD today. Okay. You're going to explain that. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain that, but I'm going to say well, not this. the SNP. Just explain the preservation of the evidence, the collection of yes, the evidence. Yes, yes, I, I want to just make a point. I want to piggyback what Dr. Debbie just said. It's normal to shed between 50 and 100 hairs a day. So if you go through life and you're healthy, normal, you're going to shed 50 to 100 hairs a day. So if you're living in a home... Every day, 50 to 100 hairs are going to come off your body. Some of them may wind up in your home. Some of them may wind up outside. But if we start with the conspiracy theories about that the daughter's involved, that's going to just take us into the weeds. Uh, I, I think it's very likely that what Dr. Debbie talked about, it was an exchange. The hairs were an exchange onto the items that they found the hairs on. Now, with regard to the evidence, when we, when we recover evidence, it's always handled in a very, very professional manner. Certain pieces of evidence are kept inside of a paper bag as to let it breathe so it, it, it'll it uh, remain intact. And other evidence is, is then placed in plastic bags or some type of a container that will keep 
anything from the outside out. So the evidence obviously was maintained over the course of time from when these bodies were covered until, as Bill just noted, when they were able to get uh, a suspect and try and get uh, some type of a DNA to, to compare it to. And then the SNP technology was used to come up with that nuclear that we uh, we just heard in the press conference. So, so, single nucleotide polymorphism. I stayed up all say night. Say that five times quick. <laughs> I stayed up all night memorizing that. <laughs> Listen, this part of the... Um, of the evidence when it comes to the jury and it comes to the trial, I am sure that they're going to have an expert that's going to explain it in layman's terms. It's going to be, listen, I've been in court where uh, there are juries and believe me, they pay attention. Uh, the way that the, the courtroom is set up, they're facing the witness, they're right there. And they're, you know, listen, they're going to be tasked with perhaps a death penalty case. So, uh, even if it's not a death penalty case, this is a serial killer that took at least four lives and perhaps as many as 11. And I think they're going to take it seriously. So once they explain it, the uh, the real layman's term about how DNA works, I think they'll get that. And then what I just talked about how, well, they're going to be the question, how did these uh, hairs of these other people who are in charge in the case get into the uh, get into the evidence but we're going to explain and they'll be able to explain that the normal human being loses 50 to 100 hairs a day. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things people want to also know here is that um, what created the Gilgo Four? Why were these four distinguished from the other seven in this case? And one of the things, of course, is that they were all found in the same, basically the same area of the area of, uh, of, of Gilgo Beach. And I'm just going to read something from, and I'll put it on the screen, actually. If, you, if you're a real follower of this case, you should absolutely have this, uh, this document and have it put on your, uh, on your computer so that you can see it. The disappearance uh, of Maureen Brainerd Bonds. Maureen Brainerd Bonds was last seen on July 9th, 2007 in New York City. At that time, she was believed to be working as a sex worker. On July 6, 2007, Miss Brainerd Bond's cell phone was contacted by a burner cell phone. That Didn't we just hear about that? They have that number. They have the last four digits that they called out. We talk about the science and the art of investigation, both here, both, because anyone that's ever done any cell phone work in an investigation knows how painstaking it is. It doesn't just pop out at you. It's something that you have to really search for. On July 6, 2007, Miss Brainerd Bond's cell phone was contacted by the burner cell phone between July 6, 2007 and July 9, 2000. There were 16 interactions between this burner phone and Brainerd Bond's cell phone. On July 9, 2007, the last cell site location for the Brainerd Bond cell phone was at approximately... 1156 in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. Thereafter, the Brainerd Bond cell phone had no further activity until July 12, 2007. On July 12, 2007, three days after her disappearance, two outbound calls were made for Brainerd Bond's cell phone, checking her voicemail from a cell site location near the Long Island Expressway in Icelandia. So connecting the scientific evidence with the artistic evidence and connecting the dots, I, as I love to say in all investigations, 
is so damn important. And the fact that Rex Ullman, and I'm going to steal Professor Mike Geary's expression again, consciousness of guilt, he's trying to cover his tracks before he's even caught. Dr. Debbie. Yes, indeed. Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil. So interestingly, I 100% I agree with you with the connecting the dots. And I tend to use that phrase as well in discussions with my college students as we navigate through a lot of these high profile cases. But if I may, I'm just going to add to your to your C and bring in two more. So connecting the dots, but also what I think is very important is the consistency and continuity once the investigators, the experts, start looking at behaviors and patterns of these people. So, for example, he's already demonstrating the consistency, right? He's using these burner phones. He's reaching out. We have phone numbers. There is an audience, let's call it, of his victimology. He has been consistent with whom he is targeting. So I think all of that is another building point. So we're connecting the dots. We're seeing the consistency. And then one more area, which would be the control. He's always going to be or wants to be, as many of these killers are, no matter which case we're analyzing, with the serial killers, with the mass murderers, they are really all about control. They're controlling everything, A to Z, deciding on their plan. They're, they're planning the crime. They're finishing the crime, but all of this becomes obsessive compulsive with them, even though seemingly they may be able to interact with friends if they have friends, with family members, go to work, but it's like this constant train running through their minds, thinking about it all, before, during, and after. The before, of course, is how are they carrying out this plan? As we all know, the five W's and the H, who, what, when, where, why, and how has to be mapped out first, then they're in the, um, you know, the participation of the crime. And remember, their control gets built up. Why? Because they seemingly think they've gotten away with one. Okay, we got away with one. Let's try two. Let's try seven. They continue to do this because they think they are smarter than all of us in the field until, guess what? They get caught. Dr. Debbie, that was brilliant. It really was. Done, which leads me right into something else, which leads me into, and you touched upon it without actually saying it, is MO or modus operandi, the method of operation by Rex Schumann. And Phil, I'm going to throw this to you because I know you're salivating over taking this question. Go ahead. Well, talk to us about Rex Schumann's modus operandi. Well, his modus operandi, the profile of a serial killer is, is exactly what Dr. Debbie noted. He wants control. This is about control. It's not so much about the sex with serial killers. It's more about the control. Now, when you think about the fact that he taunted some of the family members, this is where he became excited. This is where he gained control. He was able to taunt them. Now he checked her cell phone messages to see. Now, uh, the cell phone hadn't been used for a period of about two days. But he was checking her messages to see if there was someone looking for her. Where are you? We haven't heard from you. Are you okay? Again, this is one of the other components of a serial killer that he's going to enjoy this. He's going to relive it. It's going to give him some type of, I know it's sick, but it's, it's, it's satisfaction for him that he now, he knows where this person is. 
but they don't. So it gives him some type of satisfaction, as sick as it sounds. This is why this individual could never be set loose on society. This is a really sick individual. And obviously, when you do the things that he did, and we believe he did do these things, uh, there's only one place for this person, and that's incarcerated. You know, Phil, I think you were on the show with me a couple of months ago with Dr. Joni Johnston. Yes. A PhD who's an expert on serial killers. And she said, Rex Schumann is a psychosexual, sadistic killer. Yes. And where he gets his jollies or his joy or whatever his thrills from is by inflicting pain. And it can be either physical pain or psychological pain. Because after these victims were dead, he was inflicting psychological pain on their families by using their cell phones to call their families to taunt them. That is sick. That is a That's sick the satisfaction. That's the satisfaction part for him. I, I know it sounds insane. It's sick. But this is what the profile, what we've learned from studying serial killers over the many years. This is what they... Uh, this is how they're satisfied. It's not real. There's a sexual component to it. Yes, 100%. But that's not what's driving them. The driving is the control, the satisfaction of the torture. So uh, I think that I'm glad you brought that up, Billy, because I do remember that show. And that was a tremendous point that was brought out about uh, the profile of uh, serial killers. You know, I would also bet, and Dr. Debbie, I know through your studies, you probably know this too. I would bet that Rex Schumann went back to the dump site numerous times before these bodies were ever recovered. And that is an also a common thing that serial killers will do to relive the feeling, to relive the experience. Your thoughts, Dr. Debbie? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. So I, I really want to also comment what the two of you just said, um, being sick, but also being satisfied. But I think it's important. We did have a um, preliminary conversation in the studio waiting room before we joined the guests and the three of us were talking about insanity. Now, I would like to share my opinion on that. I absolutely do not think this individual is insane. Why? Because informally we may use, you know, the person's sick, the person's crazy, but legally to be insane, as we know, and we remind the viewers, that means the individual does not know what he or she is doing. The individual does not know what he or she is doing is wrong. I do not think those elements at all apply here. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing is wrong. Why? Because he also went to great lengths to try to erase a lot of the data analytics here and the evidence. So back to the revisit. Absolutely, he did. Why? Because we'll just remind of three more terms that I think describe him and describe serial murderers as a whole. And that would be they're narcissistic. It's all about them. And again, what Detective Phil said about the satisfaction, both satisfaction and being sick. Yes, but they continue to do it. Why? Because the reliving of all of this is what they want. And that's part of their control. They want to go back, sensory issues. They want to see, they want to smell, they want to touch. It's the whole um, you know, area there of the senses. Then I think secondarily, they're grandiose. So once again, these killers do plan their work, if you will, and they work through the plan thinking nobody's catching them, nobody's as smart as they are, they've got it all under control. And then lastly, what Detective Phil said, which I agree with, that's the pleasure part. We call it hedonistic. This is a hedonistic killer. He derived pleasure from it all, A to Z. He's still deriving pleasure. Why? Because 
We know his name. He's on TV. He's in the media. Do you all remember back in July when he was getting uh, booked and the fingerprinting and the whole intake process? He said to one of the corrections officers, gee, are people talking about this case? Is it on the news? Do they know my name? Mm -hmm. And the female officer, he said, yes, they sure do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, I'm going to do a quick commercial. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell, share us with your friends and your family. And we also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to contribute financially. We have a YouTube channel membership with Countem, five different levels. We try to give the police perspective. In the case of Phil Grimaldi and myself, real true NYPD investigators who really walk the walk, and we hope we can talk the talk. I think we can talk the talk, but we walk the walk. We did these investigations across the city for many, many, many years, thousands of cases. So this is the real place to get true crime. And I think we got a good handle on this. We bring you great guests like Dr. Debbie Goodman and, of course, uh, Phil Grimaldi and this is an amazing case, and I don't want to go into all the aspects, Kelly, because there's so much with this new evidence. I want to play a little bit of this here. You give another new details in the Gilgo Beach murders. Suspected Long Island. I have no problem. All of a sudden, Billy, can I piggyback something that Doctor? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, you know, Doc, you talked about uh, the control and the satisfaction. Just think about this for a second. He had the cell phone of the victim. Now he controls that phone. That's another component of it. He uh, made calls to the to the voicemail, and we talk about uh, with serial killers trophies and souvenirs. He took that cell phone that became uh, something for him to relive the excitement of what he did to this uh, young lady. So with all of that said, I think once that comes out at the trial and you have a professional like Dr. Debbie that talks about a serial killer and the profile of a serial killer, and you understand what uh, maybe may have been going through this person's, this individual's mind, and you have the evidence, there's no doubt the connection has been made he had uh, burner phones in his control and and the victim's phone was used and if we believe he's the one that had it then he did these things so all of that said i think it's going to be a very powerful trial uh to get justice for these victims 100 yeah. percent. and i you know i think and we'll get into this a little bit more after i play this is that they haven't even discussed potential souvenirs and trophies that they recovered as a result right. of the search warrants at his office, at his home, and at his storage facility. There was another home down south. God knows what else they have. Uh, in, in, I mean, you want to see Mike Brown's head spin around like uh, in The Exorcist? Present all of this other evidence that they have that they have yet to disclose. It. Well, he probably has it, but the public doesn't know about it yet from discovery there's got to be souvenirs. There's got to be other things that they recovered in w- one of those four crime scenes. And serial killer Rex Hewerman has pleaded not guilty to a new second-degree murder charge. This comes after a grand jury formally indicted Hewerman in the death of a fourth woman in New York. This is not doing great today. So we know he, he was today. They presented it. He pled not guilty again. There is... There is so, so much evidence in this case 
Uh, again, when we mention the um, the souvenirs, the, the trophies that they haven't yet even presented, and what we when we always get back to it, uh, one of the things that was a was and is a huge piece of evidence is the um, well, that's the home, that's where they did the search warrant, but is that vehicle right there, the green Chevrolet Avalanche that came up in the investigation 12, 14 years ago, and they were not able to discover who owned it or the vehicle because of an incorrect lawman search, which anyone in law enforcement knows what that is. They, they, it was as simple as putting it in as a car rather than a truck or as a truck rather than a car, whichever, SUV, yeah, it was right, whichever the mistake was. And when they founded the task force, a female investigator from the state police ran it correctly, and it came back to a man named Rex Schuerman in Massapequa Park, who they also had evidence from the, the Castello case that a man fitting the description of a six-foot-six-inch, 280-to-300-pound ogre with this green avalanche, that evidence was in the case folder, lying dormant for years. And then they actually pulled this photo up on Google Earth. Just baffling. Some of the things they missed in this case. I mean, it's easy for us to sit back right now and critique and criticize. But, Phil, it seems like it was overlooked. Definitely overlooked, Billy. And when you look at that vehicle, think about it. The location where the bodies were found, high weeds perhaps to secrete the bodies into that area. He could have drove in there. That's a four-wheel drive. It's a high vehicle. It wouldn't get stuck very easily. Um, so I think that that was another component of uh, the the stuff that this uh, this Rex Schulman was doing. So uh, they did miss it. However, uh, you know, sometimes when you do computer searches, Billy, I've done some lawman searches in my time on the job. If you don't have an exact thing, there's a code for a suburban or a, 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 a sport utility vehicle. If you just put it in as a, a four-door car or something of that nature, it really might not show the information. However, I believe the state police investigator that did get it right, she knew how to put it in as an SUV or whatever the uh, exact code was, they were able to come up with it. And then when you look at that Google Earth photo, there it is right in front of his house. I mean, very, very powerful. You know, and it's as a law enforcement personnel, former law enforcement personnel myself, it pains me to have broadcasters rip law enforcement apart because of this oversight. But they're correct to do so. It was in plain sight. It wasn't hiding. It was in plain sight. There's the house. There's that beautiful house of the architect on a, a um, you know, <laughs> I say that facetiously. There, there's the worst house on the block that belonged to an architect. And, you know, now, of course, after it, everyone says, that was the house of a serial killer. It's easy to say that now. But uh, really, when you think he's an architect and this is the house that he lives in, it's it's baffling. And apparently... The house, not that this means a great deal, but when you look upon the uh, the personality of Rex Human, the house was a literal uh, hoarder's paradise. Like just, I spoke to some police personnel that were in that house. It was apparently a disaster. Billy, don't hold back. It was described as a shithole. I hate to use yes. that. Yeah, but that's well, how it was I, described. I, I wanted to calm down a little bit today, give you the, the good bill rather than bad bill, you know, and <laughs> although you get both. Um, they couldn't even, I, from what I understood, the investigators couldn't stay in the house for more than like 20 minutes. From the it, was, it was so disgusting. 
and they felt like there was things crawling on them. And then when you hear the attorney saying, the police destroyed this house, I'm like, the house was already destroyed. It's, it, you can see from the outside that whoever owns that house has no respect for his house, you know? Dr. Debbie, I got a question for you because uh, when I was on the job in Coney Island and 6-0 Squad, uh, my, my partner arrested a serial killer, uh, Joel Rifkin. Uh, there were two of the murders that he, uh, he had did about 16, I believe. Two of the bodies uh, wound up in Coney Island. My partner arrested him. And he had a very, very uh, distinct body over, like he didn't wash. He was very, very dirty. Is that one of the profiles of serial killers that they don't, uh, they don't, uh, you know, they don't partake in, in oral in, in hygiene. Are they generally like messy and dirty? Is that one of the profiles? It is actually. And thank you for that. Um, you know, even just listening to both of you and about this, this hoarding aspect. Remember, when we look at the psychology of these individuals, that too is about control. They're controlling the show here um, to bathe, to not bathe, to select victims how they're going to live. But a lot of these patterns of behaviors are obsessive compulsive. And so the question there becomes, again, are they controlling their own decision-making about how they live, where they live? Yes. It's not like they don't see it and they don't know about, um, you know, unfavorable body odors. Of course, that's a sensory issue that they know as well. But why? Because they're disconnected. They're focused so much on the crimes, the killings, I'll do what I want, how I want. And the households too can very often be in disarray. It's usually not the norm to go the other way, meaning to be so fastidious and meticulous and clean. That's a rarity. You know, Dr. Debbie, sometimes according to the crime that a criminal commits, like as you said, sometimes people are obsessively clean. And I found that with con men. They were obsessed with being organized and clean and they kept everything in a proper suite. They folded everything. And I was like, that has something to do with the part of their brain that is having them choose this particular crime. And the same can be said with a serial killer, like Phil described, someone that doesn't take care of himself. He's disgusting. Body right. odor. In this case with Rex Schumann, his house, he's an architect. And that was this house would be the last house you would think, oh, an architect owns this house. Oh, really? It looks like right. a, a, a high wind would blow that house over, you know? Sure. And the, the dirtiness of the home and the hoarding, yet he himself is the architect. So it truly is like this oxymoron of what they present themselves to be. I mean, when we hear about an architect, are we aligning architect with serial killer? I don't think so. I think that's very much on, you know, the end of the spectrum here. We're thinking about different typologies of who these people would be. But once again... I feel very strongly they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing is wrong. They've made a decision. There could be just complete hatred toward their victims and the type of person that those people represent, and they want to, in their minds, eradicate them. 100%. Let me see if I can play a little. He's interested in inflicting pain and getting off on that. He's going to need to take them somewhere where they're not going to be heard as much, where he has complete control over them, where he's not going to have to worry about somebody stumbling by or seeing car lights all of a sudden in the middle of his fantasy or whatever. And so I would be very surprised if he didn't take him to his house. I would imagine he took them somewhere inside where he could take his time and do whatever he wanted to do with them. Wow. Pretty yeah. amazing. Uh, I, I, I didn't know I was going to be able to find 
You that, did a good job, yeah, Billy. Yeah. And that's from the they say he could look across the bay. I don't know. I I haven't been to that area of First Avenue in Massapequa Park, but I know where it is. Uh, I grew up in Levittown, Long Island, which is only 15 minutes from Massapequa. So that was Dr. Joni Johnston on the show, I think it was at least six months ago, and describing where Rex Human would take his victim. She would have been surprised for some reason, personality was if he took them to his home, you know, that rather maybe he killed them in the vehicle or, or at some other location, but to take them home. Because, look, a lot of what we're hearing now, too, especially we have it from um, attorney uh, John Ray, who's who represented the family for Shannon Gilbert. I'm not going to everyone. So stop picking. I'm not going to pick on John Ray. I'm just saying he came up recently with some information uh, in regards to a witness from 27 years ago that involved Karen Vergata. And this witness signed an affidavit, which everyone was thinking, oh, it's an affidavit, it's true. Doesn't mean it's true. It means that the person signing it says it's true. They believe uh, it to be true. Yeah. There's a big difference in that it being true. Anyway, it threw a lot of, you know, it's like when you throw stuff at a wall, certain stuff sticks. But when it first came out, and because he had... Police commissioner at the time, Rodney Harrison, standing next to him, people took great umbrage of that. This is true. This is true because Rodney Harrison is standing next to him. And the media went at it like it was a fresh piece of meat that is totally. And I tell you the truth, I don't think it was true. At this point, I, I mean, we said it day one that we didn't think it was credible. And now you don't hear about it anymore. And that's one of the problems with this case, too, because. This case, because of the nature of the victims, that they were escorts. And very well on early on in this investigation, the Suffolk County detectives may not have given it the attention it deserved because of that fact. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to deny that. They may have. But they are focused now. They are laser focused now. They have an outstanding case against Rex Schumann on the Gilgo Four. Let's get him convicted of those four murders. He will never, ever see the light of day, and guess what will probably happen after that? He's going to face, you know, 300 years in prison. He's 60 years old, whatever. Basically, more than three lifetimes, right? Four lifetimes that he'll be facing. Maybe at that point, he'll cooperate because even his attorney may say, well, you want to help the police for more privileges while you're in prison? That's the only thing you've got to trade because you're never going to be free. So there's the potential that he may... Uh, let me remove Dr. Debbie and I'll add her back. Phil, there's the potential that he may tell the truth and they may find out who some additional victims are. Listen, that would be uh, something that would make this case, uh, we'd be whole with the case. If he did cooperate, uh, that would be something uh, very substantial. And I think that, uh, like you said, Billy, if he's facing uh, you know, all this time in jail, don't forget as Dr. Debbie said, I know she's not on the screen right now. I wish she was here to comment about it, but he's going to relive it at the trial. He's going to enjoy every minute of the trial. And it's unfortunate that family members may testify and he's going to get off on that. And when he hears the evidence and all the things he's going to been accused of, he's going to get off on that. So once he's convicted, if he is in fact convicted and he's facing all this time, he's going to want to talk about it again with investigators. Perhaps he will at that point. Uh, agree to cooperate and give information. And when he talks about it, he's reliving it. We know that from where he lives, he possibly could see the general area 
where uh, these victims' bodies were found, off in the distance. So maybe when he got up in the morning and he looked out the kitchen window and was sipping his coffee, he was reliving it, reliving it again. All part of the components and the profile of a serial killer. I think that uh, this is, uh, Bill, you brought it up earlier. You talked about how they re uh, returned to the scene. Uh, Brian Koberger, we know that he went back to the scene, uh, even though he's not really a serial killer per se. In he's a mass killer. Murders. He's a mass killer. Yeah, yeah, he's a mass killer. But had he gotten away with this, would he have killed again? I think there was a great chance that he would have. But the point I'm trying to make is he returned to the scene. That's something that we do see in these uh, serial killer cases. They want to see what they did. They want to see the excitement, almost like uh, when an arsonist starts a fire and then either calls the fire department or stands there as the fire department responds and puts out the fire. Did we lose Dr. Debbie, Bill? She's trying to come back on. She's, she lost her internet connection. If okay. I see her on back, I'll bring her back in. I, so I, I had a question for her too, but okay, got it. Well, got I can't it. ask her a blank screen. No. Phil, this is Geraldine Hart, all right? She was the police commissioner right before um, Rodney Harrison. Right. She's a former FBI agent. She's an attorney. But she did something that was very smart uh, during her tenure. And one of, the one of the problems, of course, with the investigation was that there was too much secrecy. Uh, and we can get into the, the – I'm not going to get into it, the corruption with uh, Chief Burke and all that other stuff. That's water under the bridge right now. There's nothing we can do about it. But – that, of course, did hurt the case. But they were not using the press to help in this investigation, and they really needed to do so. And right here was a belt that was recovered, and they believed that this belt, uh, the, they believed the initials were WM, uh, excuse me, WH, William Ewerman, and it could have been Rex Ewerman's father. That belt was found wrapped around the head of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. And there were hairs of Essa Ellerup around that belt. Tremendous, tremendous forensic evidence, right? Tremendous oh. evidence that, and my, the question is, why did they wait all those years to release that? Again, right there, could there be a potential that someone would have recognized that belt or could have seen, I've seen that belt on Rex or I've seen it, but yet they, they didn't disclose it. And there it is again right there. Uh, and sure enough, we talk about the art and science of investigation. It contained hairs on it belonging to Essa Ellerup. So just brilliant, brilliant work. But yet all of those years, that was sitting dormant in some evidence locker. And they never enlisted the press to put it out there till very late in Geraldine Hart's tenure as the Suffolk County Police Commissioner. Phil. Bill, you made a great point. A lot of times in uh, investigations, we want to utilize the media to help us put pictures of a perpetrator, video, di different things of that nature to try and help us to get tips uh, to, uh, you know, to, to make an arrest or to find out who a suspect is or a perpetrator in a case. Uh, you also want to sometimes shut the press out. You don't want too much information out there, depending on how the case is going. But that belt, uh, I think it should have been put out much earlier than it was. Uh, there was probably uh, a little bit of a cloud of secrecy among the case. They didn't want media retention. They didn't want, the bottom line is, is that between the district attorney at the time and Chief Burke, they didn't want any uh, attention in their backyard at that time. So that's probably why it wasn't put out. Just think about the fact if, 
Rex Uman's father's name is William Uerman, uh, and that belt says WH on it. That's pretty powerful to me. And then you have the hairs, obviously, attached to it. Very, very powerful stuff. Um, I would also like to see when this particular piece of evidence, the belt, was put out into the media, what did Rex Uman do? Were there any searches on his computer? That had to raise him up if he saw that. That had to make some kind of uh, an impact on his thinking. Did he become, uh, you know, concerned about that? Did he uh, now change, uh, you know, direction and try to get that information uh, from the internet to buy those uh, apparatus to wipe his computer clean? That's another thing. If there's something that correlates from the, let's say, the date and time that it was put out in the media, did he do something that they can present? in court. That's all stuff that we kind of call circumstantial evidence and consciousness of guilt. But uh, those are very, very important things. And I agree with you, Billy. Perhaps it should have been put out a lot sooner. 100% it should have went out there. Hang on a second. Hey, police. Yeah, there's somebody after me. I'm sorry? There's somebody after me. Where are you? There's somebody after me. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? Please, stop. No, stop it, please. That is the voice of Shannon Gilbert calling 911 on May 1st of 2010. She was calling from the gated community of Oak Beach on Long Island in New York. Shannon was a prostitute who visited a client in that neighborhood. That call for help did not save her. Shannon disappeared. The initial search of the area Shannon was calling from did not reveal what happened to Shannon or where she was. But it did uncover something even more shocking. A series of bodies and a potential serial killer. And as more bodies were discovered, the search intensified and finally, 18 months later, Shannon's body was found. Tonight, we take a listen to the 911 call made by Shannon, which took 12 years to release. And we try to uncover what happened to Shannon. So one of the reasons I bring this, I play that is because this, the case of Shannon Gilbert was ultimately what led the Suffolk County police to find the four bodies known as the Gilgo Four. So this, all the, these cases are interconnected and whether they can ever put the, what some believe the Suffolk County police do not believe the Shannon Gilbert case was, was a murder. And many people are very upset about that. However, it definitely helped in the investigation in that it led to what is now known, of course, as the Gilgo Four, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartolome, and Amberlynn Costello. So when we talk about the interconnectivity of these cases, uh, the Shannon Gilbert case was somewhat of a catalyst, Phil. Absolutely, Billy. Without that case, perhaps these bodies may have still been in that marshy area. Uh, the police in Suffolk County don't believe that her disappearance 
uh, has anything to do. It's not connected to Rex Ullman. Uh, again, they don't believe that she was a victim of a homicide. They believe that uh, she may have had some type of an intoxicant, was kind of freaking out and wound up, uh, you know, running into those weeds and uh, succumbing to the elements, perhaps, uh, you know, drowning in the in the marshy area. But with that, all of those things said, um, I do believe that uh, this case is very powerful and very strong. Uh, when you take it apart and you look at all the different elements that there are, uh, yes, uh, Shannon Gilbert, uh, it did have a lot to do with uncovering a lot of the details and perhaps some corruption uh, with this case. But is it directly connected to Rex Schuerman? And uh, is she a victim of a homicide? I don't believe so. Well, Phil, you know, just uh, it's it to to go get a little deeper in the science of that. The um, Suffolk County medical Office Center. of the Chief Medical Examiner said that the cause of death was inconclusive. They couldn't determine uh, what the cause was. She was found what eighteen months after she was uh, she was she was de uh, dead, and so the family or and or um, attorney John Ray brought in former New York City chief medical examiner, Dr. Michael Bodden. And Dr. Michael Bodden really agreed with the findings of the Suffolk County medical examiner, except he said that it looked like the hyoid bone was cracked. And that, as you know, is a sign of asphyxia, a potential asphyxia. So Dr. Michael Bodden threw a whole hornet's nest into the mix, which he sort of ruled that, no, I agree with the Suffolk County medical examiner, but I'm disturbed by the hyoid bone being broken. And I think this could be death by asphyxia, therefore equals a homicide. I think he was actually quite wrong in his ruling. I mean, you can't have it both ways, Billy. If he, and he clearly said this, he said, I agree with the findings of the Suffolk County medical examiner that the, to be uh, the cause of death to be undetermined. And then he says about the hired bone. Now, listen, of course, we're going to look at that. It's part of the uh, forensic uh, examination of the victim. Is it cracked? Yes, it is. Okay. But we also have the other components and elements. We have the driver, who Mike, who was uh, on that 911 call, who was very vigorously interviewed. We have the person whose home she was in. We have the other person whose door she knocked on. And they all described basically together the same. I mean, maybe detailed a little bit different that a person who was frantic and ran off. And so I think with all of those things, that's how they came to conclusion. They didn't just use the Met, uh, Suffolk County medical examiner's uh, uh, examination of the body and determination to be undetermined the cause of death. They took everything else that they had into uh, consideration and they came up with that. And I, I, clearly stated this in several episodes before, what reason would they have with the Suffolk County prosecutor, Suffolk County Police Department, the FBI, the state police, everybody that's involved in this case, what reason would they have to eliminate this case from the serial killer case and all these other murders? There is no reason. This is what they firmly believe based on extensive interview uh, and, and investigation. Well, Phil, it sort of took a life of its own because of the alleged corruption with the Suffolk County police. And that's why no one believes the findings. So that is understandable. Uh, As host of the True Crime Podcast, The Sidebar, Joshua Ritter.
this should go kick in. I'm having problems with this Wi-Fi. I got it fixed and it's still. Uh, you know, Billy, going back to Shannon Gilbert real quick. I mean, if you have all these other murders and the victims he's also found a criminal defense attorney and former oh, prosecutor. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Mr. Ritter, I just want to jump right in there and, and follow up on some of the things that Laura mentioned in her report, uh, including the belt with the initials. We can expect all of that uh, to be contested by uh, Mr. Heerman's defense attorney. But Mr. Heerman is expected to be charged later this morning in Maureen Brainerd Burns' death. The fourth, fourth victim we've been hearing about. What kind of concrete evidence do you think authorities had in her case, if any, that caused such a delay in filing the murder charge? It was the DNA evidence. One thing that we know about this investigation is that they've been in incredibly thorough, but they've also been patient. And so it looks like that they wanted to wait until they had more uh, conclusive uh, testing done on the DNA evidence that uh, linked Curin to this last victim here before they were willing to charge him. And I think that shows um, good judgment on their part, that they weren't just willing to go ahead and charge him if they didn't feel that they had a locked down case. So it's no surprise that this uh, victim is being charged. Uh, the timing is a little bit of, of a surprise, but if you had been following the case and reading the affidavits attached, you knew that this was a victim that he was the prime suspect on. Hey, Joshua, now I've mentioned how you've also worked in the space as a criminal defense attorney. Authorities say they were able to confirm DNA evidence by plucking pizza crust out of Herman's trash can. However, that pizza crust deemed a bit controversial to some criminal experts. Will it be enough for the prosecution to get a conviction? I think it will. I mean, li listen, obviously the defense is going to attack it. They're going to attack the constitutionality of recovering that pizza crust. I, I, I don't think the prosecution is going to have much of a trouble with that argument because it was something that he discarded. Therefore, they don't need a, a search warrant uh, in particular to, to recover that evidence. But they're also going to uh, attack the collection of DNA evidence and the transporting of DNA evidence and the testing of DNA evidence. This whole case is really going to come down to that linchpin evidence of the DNA evidence and the defense is going to do whatever they can to try to poke holes in that and cause some sort of doubt to arise in the jurors' minds. And Joshua, last question I have for you. I have less than a minute, but I know you've covered this in your podcast. It, it, tell our viewers why you think um, Huron will likely have four murder charges after today's major announcement. Eleven bodies were found on Gilgo Beach. Why haven't authorities made any gains in those other cases? I think they may be working on those other cases. I think they're, like I said, I think they're being patient. I think they're taking their time. I think they want to make sure that they don't charge him with something that's not going to stick that may cause jurors to doubt the other counts. Right now, they have four strong counts. They're going to cross corroborate each other when they actually argue this at trial. And so they don't, they want to make sure that they don't bring in another count that may be weak and cause some doubt to arise in the jurors' minds. Joshua Ritter, host of his true crime podcast. This so, Phil. Good points raised here. Um, Very good. Obviously, um, some of the things we already spoke about, uh, and the one thing is that they got four solid cases. They got four indictments by a grand jury. The grand jury is still impaneled. And that's when we think about right here, the Gilgo Four. And name that because they were all found within 25 to 30 feet 50 feet of each other in that area of Gilgo Beach. They were all uh, escorts, uh, which fits Rex Human's modus operandi. And it was the time frame, they were all discovered uh, in 2010, even though Maureen Brainerd Barnes was missing 
since 2007. So when we think of how long this goes back and how long this evidence has been preserved, and we talk about the forensic evidence, the physical evidence, and the investigation being part uh, science and part art of investigation, it's amazing that we're getting closer to the trial. We're getting closer to uh, the possibility that Rex Schumann is going to be held accountable. And this will be a, a fascinating trial with all the things that went on during this case over these 14 years that it's been going on. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that that Joshua there on that last video you played, he made a great point. The defense, and play a little bit of devil's advocate here, the defense is going to have to go after the collection, the testing, uh, how this evidence was recovered. They're going to fight the, uh, the fact that the pizza crust was taken out of the garbage. They're going to lose on that one. If they find a problem in the lab or whoever it was that did the examination, if they find a problem of how uh, the actual hairs were collected, who had the, uh, uh, you know, who vouched the evidence, how was it uh, safeguarded all this time? That's where a uh, defense attorney is going to try and find a kink in the armor, so to speak, to, uh, you know, to put that evidence out of the, of the case. I don't think he's going to be successful uh, based on uh, what we see about this evidence. It does seem that it had been collected properly. It does seem that it had been tested properly. And when you hear about those numbers, that there's no such number, you know, uh, you put 48 zeros on the end of that number and it's trillions and trillions, or uh, there's not even a name for the amount of uh, the possibility of uh, being someone else. There's only a certain number of people in the world. So I guess you can come to the conclusion that this DNA evidence is exact and it's super powerful. This is Rex Human's attorney, Michael Brown. Thank you folks, if, if I can. We entered a not guilty plea this morning. He has maintained his innocence from day one. Uh, he entered a not guilty plea on the original indictment, and he again entered a not guilty plea this morning. What is the reaction to the new charges? Well, we, we had advance notice that it was coming, so I explained that to him. Uh, again, he, he said, I'm not guilty of these charges. He's looking forward to fight these charges, and, and we're doing that. We're going to continue to prepare. Uh, I, I expect that additional discovery will be forthcoming on the newest victim, and, and we're going to examine that and scrutinize it. Any reaction it. to the hairs linked to his daughter and his wife? You know, we, we saw that this morning, and I know you're going to have a subsequent press conference upstairs. Uh, you folks have followed this case from the beginning, and, and all along we have been told that the evidence uh, is unsuitable for nuclear DNA testing. This morning was the first time, and this is 13 plus years, that miraculously nuclear DNA testing and results have come forward. There has been testimony, there has been lab reports that consistently said it was incapable of having nuclear DNA testing. And we had mitochondrial DNA and, and those statistics were, were quite frankly uh, not very convincing. Um, the initial mitochondrial DNA testing uh, for what they claim was his wife was 28 out of 10,000. There was another hair that was four out of 10,000. So he's discussing the DNA and the difference between mitochondrial and the new test that they did, which is nuclear DNA. 
that doesn't put the wife as a suspect in terms of or the, the actual uh, donor of that DNA. But what it simply says is, is that she is not excluded. But if you take 28 people and uh, you'll find out of 10,000 people, 28 will have the same exact type of uh, DNA. But 8 trillion to the daughter. This is, this is what we just heard this morning. So, so we're, we haven't seen anything on the newest uh, indictment, but I am concerned because. So, Phil, a hell of a lot different than what uh, Ray Tierney is saying. The take by uh, Michael Brown, it's like he heard a whole different uh, presentation of the evidence. And uh, I think that uh, what Ray Tierney presented is undoubtedly correct. It's coming right from, from the lab, the information he has in front of him. And from Michael Brown is, you know, it's just it doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like he thought he was going to be able to attack the DNA evidence that was put forward in the early, uh, you know, after the first arrest, uh, because it was mitochondrial DNA. It was going to be easier to attack. He thought he was going to be able to create doubt with that. Now you have the uh, the different type of DNA here. Uh, the examination was done in a lab, and I think he's going to have to try and either attack the lab or the collection of it. And it's going to be a much difficult, uh, much more difficult time for him to attack that type of evidence. So he has his work cut out for him. You know, it, there's not only the DNA evidence in this case, Billy. We, we talked about a lot of different things. And obviously, DNA of this nature is super powerful. It's it's him, you know, and it's Acerella Rubin. It's the daughter's hair because of the type of DNA that they got back now. But there is so many other things in this case. Uh, when you look at uh, the telephone stuff, the computer stuff, the uh, exchanges with the victims beforehand from burner cell phones, and they now recovered those burner cell phones. And the question that I was going to ask Dr. Debbie was, in her opinion, because I believe these murders took place in his home. Do you think the murders took place in his home? Because now we have the possibility that there was physical evidence from the victims recovered inside those homes. We also talked about trophies and we talked about uh, taking uh, articles uh, from uh, the victims. Are any of those things going to be presented as evidence in the trial? So souvenirs and trophies, that's uh, something that I think uh, may be pertinent uh, going on further in this case when it goes to trial. And I do believe that those murders took place inside his home. What, what's your opinion on that, Bill? Do you think it took you know, place? Phil, I, I think that I don't know if all of them did. I think there's a possibility that a couple of them did. But when I listened to Dr. Joni, for some reason, as a serial killer profile, she did not think that he brought the victims to his home. And that also can be, uh, you know, we, we heard uh, John Ray's press conference when he swore that uh, Asa Elrup, there's a picture of uh, attorney John Ray. Uh, I'm not going to base my opinion on what Johnny Ray said. What, what I'm basing my opinion on is this. We know that his family was out of the home. They were away during the times that we believe the murders took place. And I really believe a serial killer obviously wants control. He's not going to be able to control a situation in a vehicle if someone should pull up on him. He's not going to be able to control a situation somewhere out in public. He's going to be able to control the situation in the basement of his home. That's where I think these murders took place. And I'm sure we're going to get an indication of where the prosecution thinks these murders take place when this trial does happen. Um, 
I, I just, you know, I, I kind of feel that way based on what I know about serial killers from previous uh, investigations on serial killers and the profiles. Uh, it would seem more than likely to me, and I'm not saying it's not possible that they did take place, let's say in his vehicle or somewhere else, but I think it's more likely that it took place in his home. You know, Phil, one of the things, and you know, and I know, is that um, scientific in, uh, evidence is the best evidence you can have. Yes. When we're getting, you know, witness evidence, eyewitness identification, all of those things, they're icing on the cake. But the strongest evidence is, is always science. Science is the strongest evidence in a case like this. And when we heard today that not only do they have mitochondrial DNA, which we know is from a hair shaft and it's from the maternal side of the family and that the mother and the daughter's mitochondrial DNA are basically identical. But then they also have five pieces of nuclear DNA, which is actually more accurate. And attorney Michael Brown was not happy about that. Uh, you could see that in the press. Yeah, conference. It's very His posture was much different than previous press conference. Yeah. And I think he, it was almost like he, he made something up there that, I, that, you know, saying, Oh, it's only 28, you know, 28 at 10,000. Those numbers don't sound right. No, no, it sounded ridiculous. Uh, so I, I just really didn't um, get it. Chelsea, B. think about what he said, Billy. He said that if you take 10,000 people, 28, 28 out of that 10,000 are going to have the same profile. No, no way. That's boring. No, I be, I think that was ridiculous. Chelsea yeah. B, science is amazing now. It absolutely is. Sure is. Uh, we see, uh, if you guys follow us on a, some of the other cases, the Koberger case in Idaho, the quadruple murder where Brian Koberger is sitting in jail awaiting trial. That is going to be a huge scientific case also, and we have something called touch DNA found on a knife sheath left in the crime scene. But yet there are many that think that's not very strong evidence. And, you know, to me, how did, you know, how did it get there? Like, it's sort of ridiculous in my mind. But this, this DNA evidence that goes back 12, 13 years is so, so solid that the evidence was preserved, presented, and then tested when the science had matured to the point where they could do mitochondrial and nuclear DNA testing and have the DNA hairs come back to Asa Ellerup and to uh, Victoria Ewerman and Rex Ewerman. Outstanding work. That is outstanding. And we, you could say what you want about the Suffolk County Police, but once this task force was formed and once they all got on the same page, things started to happen, Phil. Absolutely, Billy. And when you look at DNA uh, technology today, it's gone uh, so, so advanced over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and it's like a fingerprint. Uh, you know, you leave something behind uh, like a fingerprint, like DNA. Uh, it can only be traced if you look at that nuclear to that one person, there's no question. And to me, I think that is just so powerful. Now, if you have just DNA, you look at all the other evidence though you have too. So you're going to take all the different components. We talk about circumstantial evidence all the time, Billy. This is not circumstantial. DNA is scientific evidence. To me, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. I am sure it'll be met the same way by the jurors. Then you have all the other different types of evidence that we talked about, the circumstantial stuff. And there's a lot of things that we don't know that haven't been revealed to the public. That's going to come out at trial. 
let's hope and pray that uh, uh, there's more uh, specific stuff that was found inside that home uh, related to Rex Yeoman that's also related to the victims in this case. 100%. We also talk about, you know, the recent noise, I'll call it noise, where um, that's Asa Ellerup standing next to her attorney, Robert Macedonio, the uh, Peacock documentary where she purportedly was offered a million dollars to uh, do a documentary on this case as it's happening. So there's some of the noise, of course. And we have John Ray uh, with witnesses coming forth that are um, saying things happen that sort of can't be vetted at this point. Uh, so that sort of gets in the way. And there's also that's uh, Robert Macedonio Forefront and uh, another attorney named Vesmetev who used to work with Johnny Ray. And now he works with uh, Robert Macedonio. And Vesmetev is the attorney for the human children, adult children. And Robert Macedonio is the attorney for Asa Ellerup. So a lot of distractions in this case. And it, it, there's, of course, the infamous Johnny Ray. And uh, I not, don't mean to disparage him. He kept this case alive. He kept it in the public eye when it seemed like people wanted to put it on the back burner. But just to keep that in mind, and of course, this is District Attorney Ray Tierney, who I'm sure is working uh, tirelessly to bring this case forward with the grand jury still being active and the uh, Gilgo Beach Task Force. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention former Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison who no doubt did an unbelievable job on this case. And I don't think this case would be where it is today if not for Rodney Harrison and the outstanding work that he brought to the case using New York NYPD-style task force and, and putting this team together that uh, bore these results. Phil, I'm going to give you your, uh, your final thoughts. And we've been on for now in 25 minutes. It went fast. And, folks, unfortunately... Dr. Debbie didn't have an appointment. Her uh, her internet went down, and uh, I, I was trying to get her back onto the site, but uh, we'll have to have her back on again. We'll definitely have her. I love Dr. Debbie. I think she's He's a great. fantastic guest, and all you guys seem to love Dr. Debbie. So uh, I'll bring her back on as soon as I can. Phil, your final thoughts. My final thoughts. I'm just so happy that today we did get uh, charges against Rex Ullman for uh, Maureen Brainerd Bonds. I'm going to mention the names again. You put it up a few times, but this is really what it's about. Melissa Bartholomew, Mega Waterman, Amber Costello, and Maureen, Maureen Brainerd Bonds. That's why we're here. We're trying to get justice for these victims. Hopefully their families will find some comfort in this. Uh, you know, there's no closure in a situation like this. I always say that. I don't think there's any such thing as closure when someone is murdered in this fashion. Um, we're just going to hope and pray that we do get uh, the justice that's deserved in this case. There's still other victims that were found out there. I believe uh, seven other victims. Hopefully uh, the investigation continues and they can determine if Rex Human is responsible for those victims as well. Uh, and we're just going to stay tuned to this. This case is uh, very interesting. Uh, if you like this type of a podcast, I think uh, you can't get anything better than uh, the way that we handle it. We do it from experience. We do it from our uh, uh, extensive uh, work that we did in law enforcement. And we had a great, great guest today. She needs to be recognized. 
Uh, she was just, Dr. Debbie was great. I, I think if you look at the early part, even though she cut out at the end, uh, some of the things she said were very, very insightful and informative. And uh, I hope to have her back again real soon. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. This case, of course, is not over. There is way more evidence that we haven't heard about. We, there's not even a trial date. I believe the next court appearance is um, February 6th. Uh, Rex Human will be back in court. Uh, so they'll be discussing all types of things, mostly procedural things. But we'll keep an eye on this case. And as, if there's anything new to report, we will be there. Police off the cuff, real crime stories. Have a great day, everyone. And we'll see you soon. God bless. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.